0: And what he means by that, you are spiritually mature. You are walking in the Spirit. If you are spiritually mature, that ministry is yours. You don't just slough it off. It's it's not going to be easy. It's never going to be easy. But it is a, as I said earlier, it is a vital, of vital importance to uh, the body of Christ. Now, this type of ministry calls for a faith that is two things. Number one, it's bold, but it's also humble. Because you got to be bold to go do that, all right. I don't know how many of you've ever done it, but to go to somebody that's in sin or is strayed from the faith and and basically get in their face and say you're wrong, you got to be bold to do that. But it also you got to be humble, because the fact is, for the except for the grace of God, that would be me, right? I mean, we all know that. So it's bold and and yet it, it's humble. Now. A lot of us, when we say those two words, boldness and humility, it seems like exact opposites of one another. You can't be both. But the fact is, you can. In fact, that is the biblical, in the, in the Bible, you'll see this word, meekness or gentleness. And, and meekness and gentleness is exactly that. It, it's a boldness with humility. It's strength under control. It's like a, it's like a war horse that can charge into battle and it's bold and yet that the rider says stop and it stops. Right, it's not out of control. It's not just like a like a a bull in a in a china shop. It's submissive to the Lord, and that's the kind of faith uh, that we need—bold and and humble. And in fact, that is one of the fruits of the spirit. Right, gentleness. Gentle doesn't mean I'm a like a little mouse. When I think of gentle, I think of a strong man who yet can can pick up a child. It's strength with 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 kindness. It's strength with humility. That's what boldness is all about. Of course, that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, bring all this up because today in Genesis 14, we're going to see that kind of faith in Abraham or Abram. We're going to see a faith that is bold, but we're also going to see a faith that is very, very uh, humble. Now, let's, I want to look at both sides of this. So let's start with bold faith. We're in Genesis 14. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now, just stick with me. We've got to get, a lot, get through a lot of weird names here. And then we'll kind of tell you what's going on. Genesis 14, one through 4. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, Chertalamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Solomon, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidom, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chertelamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Now, stop right there. Now, in those days, you didn't have countries like you do today. You know, today we got United States and Canada and Iran and Australia. You have countries. In that day, you had these little things called city-states. And basically, what a city state was, it was a, it was a city that had a king over it and maybe some surrounding territory. So you had a little city here, uh, uh, with some territory around it and it was ruled over by a king. That was his, his kingdom. And they were called, uh, they were called city states. So what the Bible's telling us here is, oh, remember, this is all, when it talks about East and West, Genesis is all written from the perspective of Israel or from Canaan, right? That's where we're, as far as they're concerned, that's where you're sitting. So when it talks about the east, it's talking about Mesopotamia. It's talking about modern-day Iraq and Iran. It's talking about the Fertile Crescent over there. And so it says there were, were five kings uh, or four kings over there. And then in the west, in the Jordan Valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, cities like that, there were, there were five kings there. And if you look at it on a map, the east, again, would be over in the Mesopotamia area. Uh, those would be the kings of the east and then the kings of the, uh, over there in the Jordan Valley in the land of, of Canaan. Now, Sodom, which is in the Jordan Valley, remember Lot has moved over towards Sodom, along with those other city-states, had for 12 years been under the rule of this Chertolamer king of Elam who is over... So let me back that up a little bit right there... So those little city-states over there on the left had been under the rule of this assortment or this consortium of city-states over in the east. Remember, those guys were all over on the Euphrates River. They got big cities and things like that, and they had more power and stuff. And so they, for 12 years, they had ruled these smaller cities over in the land of Canaan. But in the 13th year, they decided to... Rebel. Now the kings in the east are not going to put up with this, and here's the reason why. You remember how Abraham traveled to Canaan? Remember he went up the Euphrates River and then you go down the coast, you don't go across the desert? Well see, this is their this is their trade route to Egypt. So whenever those guys want to trade with Egypt, they go up the Euphrates, they come down the coast, through Canaan, they go through those cities, and they go down into Egypt. So they're not going to this if these guys rebel, this is going to disrupt their trade route. So these guys are not going to put up with that. So they decide to make war, and they come to the Jordan Valley. Let's look at verse 5 through 7. In the 14th year, Chernal and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashteth Karnam, the Zuzum and Ham, the Emim and Shaveth Kiriatham, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazazon Tamar. Now, I don't really know what all that means other than there's a bunch of tribes out there, right? And as they're coming down through there, they're just making war with all these tribes. They're getting as much spoil as they can possibly get, taking slaves, taking gold, taking whatever they can find. So they defeat all these little tribes, and then they turn back, and it's like, okay, now it's time... To handle these cities, so they meet them in a place called the Valley of Siddim, which is at the south end of the of the Dead Sea. And let's see what happens. Verses eight to nine. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela—that is, Zoar—went out, and they joined battle in the Valley of Siddim with Chertalamer, king of Elam; Tidal, king of Goam; Amphrathel, king of Shinar; and Ariok, king of Elesser, Four kings against five. Now. At that point, the Bible doesn't really tell us what happens. It doesn't give us a lot of detail about the battle or anything like that. But evidently, the the big guys from the east won, because verse 10 says this. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits. That's tar pits or asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now, as was customary in that day, when you won the battle, to the victor go the spoils. You get everything. You get people, you get money, whatever, animals, whatever you want to take. Verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they went their way. And so when they say went their way, they head back north and they're going to come go back down to their cities in the Euphrates River. Now, all of that doesn't really mean a whole lot and it probably would have never made the Bible except for one thing and that's verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. That's the only reason this even makes it in the Bible, is because they took that one man. Now let's pause here for one second and go back to last week. You remember last week our lesson was on choices? And you remember Lot had a choice, and he looked over at the Jordan Valley, and it was so pretty and so lush, and he says, I'll take that. And, the, and in uh, Genesis thirteen twelve, it said he moves his tent as far as Sodom, right? So he's still living in a tent, but he gets right up next to the city. He's not in the city, but he gets right next to it. Well, today in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 12, notice what it says. They took Lot, who was dwelling where? In Sodom. See, he's done compounded one bad choice with another bad choice. He had moved up to Sodom, now he's moved into Sodom. He's not living in the tent anymore. He's got him a house, he's got him a dwelling place right there in the city. So when they come and and take the city, they take Lot with them. Let's read verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner, And these were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he chases them up north of the Dead Sea, up north of Galilee, and he chases them up into a place called Dan. Verse 15, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, which is obviously up in Syria. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. Now, Let's put ourselves in Abram's shoes. Abram hears that his nephew has been taken captive, right? All of his people, all of his stuff. And he could have made any number of excuses not to go, right? For example, Lot, he's made a lot of bad choices, isn't he? He's in Sodom, right? After all, a man reaps what he sows. Isn't that easy for us to say about our brothers and sisters who have made mistakes, right? Well, hey, you reap what you sow. You know, you sow to the wind, you're going to reap to the wind. He could have said that. He could have said, you know what? <clears throat> God's sovereign. If God didn't want to, uh, to, uh, this all to happen, he would have never allowed those kings to conquer Sodom. And hey, it might be God's will. Who am I? Who am I? to go after this lost brother or this lost kinsman. I mean, it just could be God's will. And practically speaking, look, I'm living here in peace. Everything's going good. Why do I want to stir the hornet's nest? Right? I mean, those those are some strong kings. Why would I go against them? They didn't bother me. This, This ain't none of my business. You see, fact is, he could have made any number of excuses, and in the same way, you and I can make the exact same excuses. See, God will put somebody on our heart. We'll know somebody. Somebody needs to go talk to them, and yet we'll use every excuse not to go do it. Well, they're reaping what they sow. Well, it's none of my business. Well, you just go down this list of excuses, and you do nothing. Nothing. But you see, Abram goes after Lot because one thing overrode everything else. One thing overrode all the excuses. You want to know what it is? He's family. He's family. See, that's it. He's my kinsman. That's my kinsman, man. See, this would have never even been in the Bible if they hadn't taken his kinsman. And, 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 and that overrode everything. See, yeah. Listen, nobody's making excuses for Lot. That guy was wrong. That guy had a lot of problems. He he is experiencing the consequences of his own poor choices. There's no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, Abram says, "I am my brother's keeper." You see, you got two choices. You can be like Cain and say say to God, "Man, I ain't, I ain't my brother's keeper. Ain't none of my business." Or you can be like Abr- Abram and say, "That's my kin. That's my family." I'm going to go after him. And so that's exactly what Abram does. Listen, exact same thing is true for you and I. You know, Paul, over and over and over again... See, to me, you got two attitudes about church. You can come to this church week after week after week after week, month after month, year after year, and you can just see this as a building. You can see it as a service. You can see it as people. Or, on the other hand, you can see this is my family. It's one or the other. You see, Paul over and over and over talks about the family of God, the family of God, the family of God. Brothers and sisters, he calls us. Brothers and sisters, do you really see the people in this room as your family? Would you really do for the people in this room what you would do for your blood family? See, that's a, that's a real question that faces each and every one of us. And, and But Paul says we are family. And that overrides or should override all the questions. Listen, there's probably not a one of us in here that if our family members, our brothers or sisters, doesn't matter what they do, they're still our family. And if they call us needing help, we go. I hope you do. I hope you've got relationships with your family that no matter, it doesn't matter. They'll make mistakes and they pick up the phone call, I need you. Boom, you're there because they're family. See, this is what this is what Abram is doing. And this takes bold faith. Abram has to exercise a bold faith to go and make war against these guys who are probably much stronger than him. But doing nothing to him was not an option. Now, sometimes if we don't have a relationship with a person... Obviously, it's not going to make a lot of sense for me to go talk to somebody that I don't really know. Sometimes all we can do is pray. But I'm telling you, when the Lord puts somebody that you know on your heart, and I can pretty much tell you that from, from knowing myself and talking to people, somebody in your life needs to be confronted. Somebody in your life needs somebody to go to them and say, the Lord loves you. The, don't Don't keep going down this path that you're that you're going down. See, the Lord may very well want you and I to be involved, especially for people that we've got a relationship with. It's never going to be easy, and it's never going to be convenient. If you're waiting for it to be easy, you're waiting for it to be convenient, you'll, you'll wait till you die, and it'll never happen. It's always risky. It's always going to take work. It's always going to take emotional energy out of you. But the same way the Lord leaves the 99 and goes after the 1... If we are His followers, if we're His disciples, how could we not do the same? How do you think the Lord goes after the one? Doesn't He send somebody? Right? Aren't we His hands and His feet and His eyes and His ears? As I said earlier, that is the job of every mature spiritual Christian. So with that in mind, let's see what we can learn from Lot. I mean, I'm sorry, from Abram when he went after Lot. Let's look at him and see what he did. And I will give you a few things you can learn. Number one, if you want to engage in this ministry, you yourself have to be separate from the world. Okay? You see, the fact is, if Abram had been living in Sodom, he would be in the same boat as Lot, wouldn't he? See, if he'd have been in the midst of the world, and that's what Sodom is, folks, Sodom is a picture of the world. If he'd have been in the, if he'd have been in the middle of the world, he wouldn't have been, he'd have been in the same boat Lot would. But he's not living there. He's living in Canaan. And by the way, we said this before. There's not a lot of difference between the people of Canaan and, and the people of Sodom. The difference is, is that Abram is living out in the world, but the first thing he does is build an altar, right? To, the first thing he does is call upon the name of the Lord. He, he's in the world, but he's not of the world. So he's in the world. He's living among the Canaanites. He's even got uh, he's allies with some of the people around him. But notice he's known as Abram the Hebrew. See, there's something about him that's different. He's not Abram the Amalekite or Abram the Philistine. He's Abram the Hebrew. They're, they worship a different God. They're set apart. They're different. Again, he's in the world, but he's not of that world. And from that position of being separate... He is able then to go after Lot. And the same is true for you and I. The only way we can be in a, in a position to go after a fallen brother and sister is we have to be separate. We have to be different. How is it? How, do, how can I go to a brother who may be in sin if how can I go and tell him to get out of that sin if I'm doing the exact same thing? Are you with me? That makes no sense. Right? We have to be separate from. The world Number two, you need preparation. You need preparation. Abram, when he gets time to go, did you notice he led forth 318 trained men? But Abram's not at war. He's a peaceful man. He's just living there, not any problems, but he's got 318 men ready to go. See, he knows the time's coming when I'll have to be ready. So he trains up all those men just in case the need arises. See, that's exactly what we have to do. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, that's not something you just flip a switch and turn on when you need to. Are you with me? You don't just flip that on and say, oh, I need to be spiritual right now. I'll be spiritual and go after this. No, that's something you prepare for. That's something it takes time to grow in the Lord. It takes time to 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 grow in the understanding of His Word and the principles of His Word. That's something we have to prepare So when the time comes, because the time may come when we're asked to go out and talk to someone, and and at that time we'll need to be able to go in a spiritually mature state, knowing the word and knowing how to apply the principles of the word to that person's situation. You've got to use the third thing is you have to use wisdom to rescue a fallen brother or sister. Listen, if you just go in somebody's house, you understand? Hey, I'm here to talk to you. What is it about? You're a sinner. Right? I mean, if you just that's not going to go over very well, is it? I don't think that's probably going to go over very well. Um, see, watch what Abraham does. Abraham goes after him, and I'm sure he's trusting God, but he's not stupid either. He looks at tactics and he says, okay, I'm going to split my forces up and I'm going to come at them at night when they're least expecting it. See, so he used wisdom. He used, okay, you know, he's trusting God, but yet he does what he knows to do. So you and I have to do the same thing. Think about, when I was putting this together, I, think I thought about the story of David and Nathan. Everybody remember, remember that story? David commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, and he's like, ah, oh, now what am I gonna do? So he puts her husband at the front of the battle, uh, and has him killed. Right? I mean, this, this, David did some bad stuff. And God saw every bit of it. So he says, Nathan, go talk to him. And Nathan didn't just walk up to David, and say, David, you committed adultery and murder. He didn't do that. He went up to David and he told him a story about a man that had a little lamb. And he loved that little lamb and he took care of that little lamb. And it was the only lamb he had. And this other old king saw that lamb and said, I want that lamb and took it from him. He told him that story. And David David identified with that, with that little guy, didn't he? And David said, oh, oh, show me that guy. I'll take care of him. And Nathan said, you're the man. And David was immediately... See, that's wisdom. Everybody with me? That's not just walking in and sticking a finger in somebody's face. That's using wisdom. See, you don't get that if you're not spiritually mature. You don't get that kind of wisdom if you don't walk in the Word and understand the principles of, of God's Word. Number four. This is so important. You are to act on principle, not results. Here's what I mean. Abram goes out and rescues Lot, brings him back, and guess where Lot went right back to? He just moved right back to Sodom. He went right back into the same situation. He didn't learn a thing from that. Not a a single thing. That experience didn't change him one little bit. In spite of what had happened, he takes all his stuff and he moves right back into Sodom and he just continues downhill ...on his spiritual course. Remember, we all know where this is going to end in Genesis 19. He's going to be living in a cave, drunk, committing incest with his daughters. See, none of this changed him at all. And by the way, Abram knew Lot. He'd been with him a long time, known him since he was a child. He probably knew. He probably knew that. that that, that You know what, even if I do all this, that Lot, he's he's always been in love with stuff. He's going to go right back into that city... But he rescued him anyway. See, I bring this up because that would be an easy thing for us to use an excuse. Even if I go get Bob or Sue or Joe or Nancy, and even if I, if we get them back into church and I get it, the way they are, man, they just gonna go right off again. <laughs> See, that's an easy excuse. Why well, try to help them? It's not gonna do any, any good. Let me tell you, there's three reasons that we help them anyway. Okay? We don't know the, res- we're not prophets. I'm not. I, I don't know what's going to happen to them down the road. There's three reasons I rescue or I make the attempt anyway. Number one, Christian love demands it. If you love somebody, you cannot just sit around and watch them go to hell. You cannot just sit around and watch their love, their life destroyed without trying to do something. That's number one. Number two, as I said, we don't know the future. We can't not do something because, hey, you know, they might, it might not work, right? We don't know that. Here's the third reason. Ezekiel 3.18. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. This is God talking, by the way. And you give him no warning, nor speak the warn, speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. God says, if I'm telling people, if if somebody is out there in sin, and He's saying, you don't go warn them. If you don't go warn them, I'm going to require that person's blood at your hand. But look at verse 19. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. You're, You're free. You're clean. You've done what I've asked you to do. See, God doesn't say, God just says, go. Go speak the word to him. Go speak my love to him. Go make the attempt. The result is up to him, not me and you. So we act on the principles of the word, not necessarily the results. If we see a brother or sister in sin, we are responsible to try to restore them no matter their response. And that needs a, that requires a bold faith, a faith like Abraham's. But it also requires A humble faith. A humble faith. And I want you to see this as we move. Look at verse 17. It says, After his return from the defeat of Chetalamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, talking about Abram, at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's uh, valley. By the way, the king's valley is what is known today as the Kidron Valley. It's the valley just east of Jerusalem that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So you, as when you come out of Jerusalem, you go through the Kidron Valley and then up the Mount of Olives. Of those of you that have been to Israel, you've probably walked in the Kidron Valley. This is where Abram met the king of Sodom, and he met Melchizedek. Okay, verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, and he said, "Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth." And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tent of everything. So this guy appears in the story by the name of Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. By the way, the word Salem means peace. It will later be changed to Jerusalem. So this is the king of of, of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. Now this is one of the most mysterious guys in the Bible. Okay, It's like he just appears out of nowhere... And just as quickly, he disappears. Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of, of time on him. Now, all it tells us is that he brings out bread and wine. you got all these soldiers. They're coming back home. They're, they're, they've been in a fight and everything. Obviously, they're tired. They're weary. They're hungry. And so he brings out bread and wine, which, of course, is a sign of, of friendship. Now, Scripture tells us he was priest of the Most High God. By the way, this is the very first mention in the Bible of anyone being a priest. You never hear this before this. This is the very first mention of somebody being a priest. Now, many people believe that this was Christ pre-incarnate, Okay, that this is actually Jesus himself. The re- this comes from Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. If you want to go read Hebrews later, you can. Hebrews chapter 7. It says this about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek... He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now listen, if you don't have a mom or a daddy, you don't have a beginning or end, that kind of narrows down our, uh, our, our pool of, of candidates, right? So many people do believe that, that this is Christ himself. We don't know that for sure, but it sounds like it could be. Now that is a lesson for another day. I'm not overly interested in getting in here and trying to figure uh, all this out about Melchizedek. What is important in our story, now this is the important part, is that Abraham recognized there was somebody here greater than me. That's what's important. It doesn't matter who this was, whether he was just a priest or whether it was Christ himself. That's not the point. The point is, Abraham, as great as he was, he recognized immediately there's somebody here greater than than me, that's the point, and this is proved by a couple things. First of all, Hebrews uh, seven seven says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the very fact that Melchizedek blessed Abram, the Bible tells us that's a that's a number one statement that Melchizedek is greater. Secondly, he gives tithes or he gives a tenth of everything he's got to this man. So he recognized, man, there's somebody here greater than me. So what he does, this is just humility, right? I mean, come on. He could have easily uh, walked in there and said, you know what, listen. That guy comes and says, God has given you this. Abram could have said, yeah, you know, but God helps those who help themselves. Or he could have said, you know, hey, did you see how I went in there at night and I, I, I divided my forces and I, no, he didn't do that. He just humbly accepted his blessing and he humbly gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. Okay? So this is the king of Sodom. Abram brings all the people back, all of his stuff, his gold, his silver, his animals. And the king of Sodom says, Hey, Give me the people, and you take all the animals. You take all the gold, all the silver, all of that stuff. Just give me the people back. And watch what Abram says, verses 22 to 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. You remember the three guys he was allies with? So they all went out with him. Right? And he says, let them have their share, but I don't want anything that belongs to you. So here's Abram. He's humbly accepting Melchizedek's blessing. He's humbly offering him a tenth of everything that he has. But then he rejects the king of Sodom's offer. Now... From this, we learn two things about humble faith. Number one, humble faith always, always, always honors God. Humble faith always honors God. When, when Melchizedek, as I said earlier, attributes Abram's victory, he, Abram comes back and, 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 and Melchizedek says, God did this for you. God gave all this to you. He gave you the victory. Abram didn't dispute that. Abram didn't say, well, yeah, but I was pretty smart to have 318 men prepared. I was pretty smart to to split them up at night. I was pretty smart. No. Abram just humbly, he knew that. And he affirmed Melchizedek's statement, and he honors God by giving a tenth. See, Abram understood God. Let's think about that for one second. Melchizedek says, God gave all this to you. And Abram says, you know, you're right. Here's Here's a tenth. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give it to God because God gave it all to me. Listen, that principle is still here today. And we can talk about tithing all day. We can talk about... You've heard me say, I I think 10%, if you want to give money to God, 10% is where you just start. You need to raise the bar. We need to go higher than that. If they could give 10% in the Old Testament, how can the children of Jesus Christ himself, brothers and sisters, how can we not do more? Don't we have a better covenant? Yes or no? We live under a better covenant. How can we not do more? So I don't want to get hung up on a number, but what I'm telling you is that principle doesn't change. God gives and we give back because everything we have belongs to Him. That that principle does not change from the beginning of time. But notice that also Abram honors God in another way by not taking what the king of Sodom wants to give him. You see, God has promised earlier to to, to prosper Abraham. You follow me, I'll make of you a great nation, he says. And Abram says, I don't want the king of Sodom taking credit for that. I don't want that guy give, I don't want that, I don't want him to to take credit away from any of God's word. So, and by the way, Abram could have easily rationalized this. Think about this. Couldn't Couldn't he have said, you know, maybe this is God's way of blessing me. Right? Oh, this, this this Sodom guy is going to give me all this stuff. Maybe that's... But Abram just always, he always was very careful. That was good about, some good things about him. He could have taken that stuff and said, you know what, this is just God's way of blessing me. But he said, you know what, I, I'm, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I know the way y'all live. I know the way you got that stuff. I know, I know, I don't want any of that. I want, I want everything I get, I want it to come from God and God alone. So he would not equate Sodom's goods with God's blessing. Let me say it again. He would not equate the world's goods with God's blessing. See, God's blessing, it ain't about the goods. It ain't about the world's goods. Listen, there's people out there that's got way more of the world's goods than than I do, and they're under a curse. They're under a curse because they don't know Jesus Christ. Just because you got stuff or don't got stuff, that's Abraham says I'm not going to equate the world's goods with the blessings of God. That's not what the blessings of God are, is really about. Man, there's a real. <laughs> we could go home and meditate on that for a while because there's a lot of good stuff there. Number two, humble faith resists the temptations of success. How we handle success sometimes is just as much a test of our faith. as how we deal with crisis. You know, if you go back and you read this story, Abraham's always being tested. He's always being tested. He was tested when he went down to to Egypt. He's tested now with with what he's going to do when Lot. He's always being tested. His faith is always growing. And sometimes when you're successful, it's just as much... When you have good times in your life, it's just as much a test of your faith It's what happens when the bad times comes. Listen, Sodom was evidently, for for a city, was very rich. Abraham, if he had everything in that city, he would have been fabulously wealthy by accepting that offer. But he had made a decision a a while back. Again, two things about him. He's a man of the altar, and he's a man of the what? Y'all remember? He's a man of the tent. He lives in a tent, never moves into a city, never builds a house or a ranch. He's always living in a tent. He's a man of the tent. This is not his home, right? That, That shows us this is not his home. So he's already made a decision in his mind that he's not going to be in bondage to things, but he's going to trust God. And you need convictions like, if you're going to have a bold and humble faith, you need to have convictions like that. Right, Already settle things in your mind so when the temptation comes, it's no big deal because you've already got a conviction deep down in your heart. So let me let me tell you, don't make up your convictions as you go. Too many people in this world are just kind of make up convictions as they go. Decide now that you're going to hold on to God no matter what. I'm going to hold on to God no matter what, in the good and in the bad. And if you do that, if you'll make that decision now, you'll be much less likely to um, uh give in to temptation when it comes. One other thing about this, it kind of says this at the end. I just want to show you. Notice something. Abraham had a conviction that I'm not gonna take I'm not gonna take the world's goods. I'm gonna um, I, I'm just gonna let God bless me and I'll deal with it that way. But notice he did not force his conviction on other people. Okay? Remember he said, take take the king of Sodom uh take take all that stuff and give those men their share, the men of Canaan that were his allies. So he didn't force his conviction on other people. That was his conviction. And that's something I think we needed to to point out. I want to close with this. I ran across a quote one day by Strom Thurmond. Y'all remember who Strom Thurmond was? He was a a senator, I don't know, from South Carolina. And they were saying one day, um, they was asking him, why don't y'all decrease spending in Congress? And he said this, it's awfully hard to get a hog to butcher itself. And I always remember that. It's awfully hard to get a hog to butcher itself. You see, guys, we need accountability to one another. If I'm off in sin, it's very hard for me sometimes to shake myself loose. Sometimes I need help. I need somebody to come to me and say, I've noticed some things in your life. I notice we're not praying together like we used to. I notice you're not testifying. I notice you're not worshiping. Are you with me? We need brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a vital, vital thing for the health of the body of, of Christ. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. We are not like Cain. We are the family of God. So let's learn from Abraham here in chapter 14 how to exercise a bold yet humble faith in the ministry of restoring our brothers and Sisters, I do want to give you a little bit of homework, and that is this. If God, if there's somebody on your... As I've taught this lesson, if somebody's come to your mind, and my guess is that it has, there's somebody on your mind, and you think, boy, this person, I, I really need to go talk to them, then I would just ask you this week to prayerfully consider doing that. I, I believe God is sovereign Do you. I believe if you're in this room... And you're in, you listen to this lesson, it's for a reason. You, you didn't have to come today. You could have been sick, could have been on vacation. I could have taught a different, I could have different, took a different tack, but we're here for a reason. So if God takes this lesson and he puts somebody on your mind and says you need to go talk with him, please prayerfully consider doing that. Because if not you, then who? If not you, then who? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for